Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. I'm here with Eden Robinson, and uh, I just want to start by reading your, your bio for your new book, because <laughs> i got to say, like, you have the best bios in the world. Thank you. So this is one of Eden's, and, and I'll put this bio, I'll, I'll put it up on my on the website at jonathanball.com slash 14. So if you go to jonathanball.com slash 14, you'll have you know, your show notes for this episode. Uh, and then also put some of Eden's different bios up. So this is her new one. Eden Robinson has matriarchal tendencies. Doesn't have a pressure cooker, but knows how to jar salmon. Her smoked salmon will not likely kill you. Hobbies. Shopping for the apocalypse. Using vocabulary as a weapon. Nominating cousins to council while they're out of town. Chair yoga. Looking up possible diseases or syndromes on the interwebs. Perfecting gluten-free bannock and playing mayong. Be warned. She writes novels and tends to be cranky when interrupted. So what would you do when someone interrupts your novel? Like, what's the, oh, what's I, the novel I'm, writing? I'm just, like, super bitchy. <laughs> Fine! <laughs> I'll move my car! <laughs> I love those bios. Thank you. And we were talking just before, uh, when we were walking over here, there was this... But, but, but the, I see a lot of people try to be funny in their bios, and they're yeah. not funny. <laughs> so I usually recommend just people that they don't try to be funny. Like when students, when students or people ask me, I'm like, just don't try to be funny in your bio. But that was that yeah. your advice are actually really good, and and I think like you do a thing in your fiction as well. You know, it's both in Son of a Trickster, the first book of this series, but also in you know Trickster Drift, uh, and, and some of your earlier work too, where you you really like cram a lot of humor into it. Um, <laughs> But it, but it, it's interesting to me because it's right alongside like these, these more kind of disturbing mm, or dark kind yes. of more horrific elements. So yes. uh, and then thing I won't say like where in the book this is, but it, there's this great moment in this book where there's this, you know kind of truly unsettling and disturbing you know, like nightmare scene unfolding, and the character is trying to get out of it, and he just starts singing a Nickelback song. <laughs> he, it's just so disturbing. This like monstrous figure is like stop singing the Nickelback song, and like, but it's really like a weird thing because I find it, 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 it's to me as a writer, it's you know fascinating scene because it's it's very funny, and it's but it's also like kind of maintains the kind of weird disturbing aspects of the scene. Mm -hmm. Plus, you know, you've actually got a a literal plot point revolved around this Nickelback song. Like it actually has plot consequences that he sang the song. It's not just like something that's happening. Yes, like he, you know, it, it helps him save his life. You know, in this moment, like it's just a, to me. Can you just talk it's, a bit about it's the, it's the rare moment when Nickelback saves your humanity. <laughs> can you talk a bit about like how, how you come up with it, something like that? So, me either that particular example or just like anything like that in the book where you were like, how, how do you get the idea to come up with the um. Like when you, you're going to use something really funny and weird like that, but but mm. if it's going to like have a real consequence in your plot, it's going to like it's not just a throwaway yes. thing that happens. Yes. Um, in in that specific instance, the the Nickelback song came very late in the editing process. Uh, in the first two major edits, uh, Nickelback was not there, and it, it was lacking something. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is, it is a very dire, grim scene, and uh, the consequences for Jared are pretty high. Um, and then, as we were approaching the end of the edit, uh, and I was looking at the scene, and I knew something was missing, um, but I didn't want to add any more horror, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to add any more grimness. And I went, okay, this is Jared. Um, in Jared's world, how would he cope with this? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> and earlier uh, in the novel, I'd written that he was dealing with the breakup with Sarah with a, a certain Nickelback song. I thought, well, what would happen if I introduced that song in the scene? It's <laughs> so great. Uh, and then when my editor read it, she went, yeah, that's, that's even more disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> 
it is even more disturbing though and like i think that's the thing people have a hard time with humor is mm. often um i remember once taking a, a screenwriting course with the george tolls who does uh, the screenplays for guy madden mm. and he um uh he he said something along the lines of how how you could add you know he, everything needs humor or you could put humor anywhere especially when it's not funny <laughs> especially when something's not you know, especially when it's not funny it needs that extra bit of you know punch yeah and if you did it right you know in his mind you would you would make like the thing even less funny if you added like 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 yes. like it would be funny now because it's humor, but like the, this the events would be less funny potentially. Like it would yes. underscore the horror in a certain level. Yeah, and I always think of horror and comedy being kind of connected in in a lot of technical ways. Like like excess yes. is you know a part of both and, and so yes. on. Um, you can s- insert a chainsaw anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to make a scene grim. <laughs> Make a scene grim or great, you know. Uh, or, just uh, add chainsaws. But in certain scenes, it makes it funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in a grim funny. I just watched the movie Mandy not too long ago, and it's oh, got yeah. this great moment where this guy pulls out a so it's like a horror film, right? And this guy pulls out a chainsaw. He's gonna go slaughter this little guy, and then that guy reaches behind a rock and pulls out a longer chainsaw. <laughs> it's like ridiculously long, like a sword. And they have a chainsaw duo. It's so it's, Okay, that would be funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much like a funny horror, though, yeah. So, um, is it important? Because you mentioned Jared, like this is kind of how he copes with things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I also like, both in Trickster Drift and uh, in the earlier book, Son of a Trickster, I mean, you've got this main character, Jared, who's you know, yeah. 16 in the one book, then he's 17 in the other book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm really interested in like that character in a couple of different ways, but... In terms of like the horror and the humor, you know, kind of balancing both. One thing that's really interesting to me is how you handle like the supernatural elements in the story. Mm-hmm. So, yes. like, so in *Son of a Trickster*, very early in the book, you have this crow starts talking to Jared, yeah, and that's sort of the first big supernatural event. But the crow is like, you, you know, it says to him, "You know, axe body spray doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work like in the commercials." And he's like, "What the?" You know, it's just like disturbed that someone's talking to him, but then like nothing really happens like supernaturally for like another hundred pages or so. Yes. Like he's just kind of going through his life and like yes. it, you know it threw him off balance. But he, but he's like, well, maybe I was just high or whatever. Yes. You know, and then like as a supernatural kind of starts to come in yes. more fully, um, you know, it, you know, it kind of ramps up. And Trickster Drift is a bit more present, you yes. know, throughout. Um, but but in both cases, even in the second book where like like that supernatural is much more wound into his everyday life uh, and now that he's uh, in, in that book he's you know sober and uh, so there's not really the question anymore of like yes you know what's real and what's not uh, i i do th- it's interesting to me how you have you have this supernatural kind of presence layered on top of a lot of things mm-hmm. uh, but you don't really dwell there a whole lot and it's not Compared to other books in this sort of um, vein, where they'll bring supernatural in early and it just it's just ramped up, and it's the most intense dramatic thing. Like often, what's happening in these books is non-supernatural aspects are more dramatic, which I think, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> yes. So, can you talk a bit about how, like that approach and how you kind of settled on doing that? And because your treatment of the supernatural is elements is really interesting to me. Like you bring them in sparingly. Uh, you you ratchet them up in certain instances, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you know, other things are driving the drama. Yes, uh, I think that is the supernatural reality in this world, and it's the supernatural reality that I grew up with. Um, you know, the supernatural elements in my own life are you know pretty low key. It's like, you know, I, uh, you know, so and so visited last night, and he really wants his fishing gear. Could you <laughs> could sure. you burn it? <laughs> <laughs> and send it to the other world. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in in Son of a Trickster, uh, he was just coming from from zero. He knew nothing. Uh, he he had you know, and his experiences with the supernatural were pretty um, uh, pretty traumatic. Like his his maternal grandmother completely refusing him as her grandson because she thought he was a trickster. Um, and 
and uh, so that's something he would naturally avoid. So he doesn't really take his mother's, you know, witch drama very seriously uh, until you know the otters are eating him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then he goes, oh well, there you know there might be supernatural elements in the world, <laughs> and they're eating me. <laughs> Uh, so in his journey, uh, the first book is all about, you know, uh, acknowledging that the supernatural exists and that, you know, spoiler alert, he is actually mm-hmm. the son of a trickster. Uh, and then in Trickster Drift, uh, he just wants to avoid it, you know, treat it like he does alcohol and, you know, um, completely abstain and not deal with it. But, you know, with Maeve's, his Aunt Maeve's apartment being so haunted... You know, he's still trying to avoid it, but then he comes to some grand bargains. Mm-hmm. Um, so while he's dealing with it, he discovers that the supernatural have, you know, similar, you know, they're not as alien as he thought they were. They have, you know, they're not all otters. They're not all tricksters. Uh, some of their motivations are um, to watch Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> These banal motivations. Very banal. <laughs> I really like that idea of, you know, just like the supernatural is just, a, you know, here, this is part of this world. It's a very mm-hmm. yeah. um, low-key kind of approach. One thing that's kind of interesting in terms of you, you kind of building this world where you have this, um, you know, steeped in the supernaturalism and yet, you know, this very, um, you know, kind of normal world in, mm-hmm. in other respects uh, and even as say like the supernatural, you know, this, this one ghost just wants to watch science yeah. fiction shows. You know, he, yeah. he wants the channel changed, and that's his great goal. <laughs> that's his unfinished business. You know, he doesn't know what happens next. <laughs> um, you've also got these italicized chapters, like throughout. Mm-hmm. I find these those these really interesting because you have you have this great in both books. You have these every once in a while. You'll have an italicized chapter where. Really, you're not dealing with the characters anymore. Yes, uh, you're just kind of talking almost very broadly in an almost cosmic scale about like, yes. the past of this world and yes. how like the supernatural entered into it or its history and so on. Yes, I find those chapters really interesting because they don't directly connect to anything that's happening no. in the plot at all. No. Um, so, can you talk about like how you came to include those sorts of chapters? And- uh, those chapters uh, were originally me just thinking about the world. They were exercises, and um, uh, some of them were hilarious, and some of them were more um, uh, just thinking about the nature of uh, time and different dimensions. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was reading a lot about uh, a lot of poets who were dealing with. Uh, the nature of time and then as I wrote my way into the books uh, I realized that it was a singular voice and it was actually spoiler alert uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was spoiler. It was actually... first spoiler was just the title of the book so yeah. I don't know I story. it's called Son of Trickster it's like, is he the son of the trickster? <laughs> yes <laughs> so this is a real spoiler really real spoiler so at the end of trickster drift and the last narrative thing where he's uh the second last narrative thing where he's mm-hmm. talking with the beavers you realize it is you know the trickster uh so yeah. in the third novel this really is a spoiler in the third novel um um because jared has transformed at the end of the second novel uh in the third novel his his dad's very very curious about what kind of trickster he's going to be and sure. if they're going to have difficulties in the future so um so we have interactions and the problem with uh two tricksters getting together is that they both they can both live in each other's brain and hmm. uh we get has slept with his mom <laughs> <laughs> and his grand <laughs> So that's, yeah, that's interesting. Well, the, the, I mean, it seems inevitable that the third book had been involved, the two of them kind yes. of coming more into it. Yes, into he finally it. comes from the wings, and uh, uh, because Jared's, you know, he's he's Jared. He he feels very guilty about killing the coywalls. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yes, they were trying to eat his family or in other worlds, but you know, you know, he took life. Uh, and some of that life was pretty young. Mm-hmm. So he's feeling um, uh, in the tradition of AA, where you confess to another person and then you try and make amends if it won't hurt the people that you're trying to make amends to. Uh, he's trying to figure out a way to make amends for killing the koi wolves. It's interesting how you have all these parallels with um, the supernatural and, you know, AA and substance <laughs> like, like his you know he, in the first book he has you know kind of issues with you know substances and the, in the second mm-hmm. book he's 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 in AA mm-hmm. and um, at the same time he's also like trying to like almost be in a self-imposed like supernatural AA <laughs> like he doesn't want anything to, he's trying to stay off it but yet you know he, he's but he's yeah he's living in this haunted apartment yes. basically uh, you know Kind of like living I, in a bar. If yeah, you're... Like, like, <laughs> I was just say, like, he can't get away from it. Yeah. But and then, like by the end, it's um, it's not that the supernatural has this um, necessarily negative effect on his life. In, mm-hmm. in many ways, it's you know saving him. Yeah. But it's also like drawing him into this you new know, kind of nightmare yes. series of scenarios. Like he yes. he's got this power, this power, but he's got um, um, in a sense like this kind of. I- inability to really deal with it mm-hmm. fully yet. Yes. Uh, partly because he's been running away from it. So, yes. so it's interesting how you have, on one hand, um, you know, he, he's sort of running away from this, uh, you know, these issues he has with, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and trying to stay off them. But then he's also like, in a different sense, kind of running away from the supernatural identity, mm-hmm. which is more of a negative thing. Yes. Like he should be accepting that identity. Yes. You know, even though he doesn't necessarily have to be going back to drugs like but like, he should kind of he needs to kind of like he needs to deal with it mm-hmm. and he just sees it as a as a path to chaos yeah uh, and it can you know magic is uh more or less neutral you know using it is not necessarily bad but um uh in in like the in the older story structures to become like a, a fully powerful person you always had to go through shit like you mm-hmm. had to go through absolute hell because that's the only way that you became um, empathetic strong connected to your community and your family uh, so that's the kind of narrative I'm working with with Jared like he he has the potential to be this incredible person but he's gonna go on a journey (laughs) you know to face his weaknesses and his strengths and one of his big weaknesses is a complete lack of knowledge about the supernatural beings that his family has been dealing with since you know uh time immemorial so um so in those stories uh touching the supernatural and gaining that much power uh, left you wild um, and the only way that you were tamed was through love, uh, through family, um, uh, through people who saw through all that wildness to the core of you and brought you back. Uh, so that's uh, that's the 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 absolute structure uh, behind the trilogy. Um, so in the third novel. Um, you know, he's he's been through a lot physically, he's been through a lot mentally, he's been through a lot spiritually. Uh, so the challenge of the third novel is, you know, it was kind of um, it was kind of easy to end the first and the second books because you didn't need a lot of closure. Uh-huh. But my challenge has always been I'm highly resistant to endings that um you know, leave no doubt. I love ambiguous endings. And I've been told by my family that those suck. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot end the Trickster series like this. (laughs) You have to give us closure. Solid, decent closure. Um, (laughs) That's great. uh, So, so, uh, so each, so... Uh, his mother Maggie has been an offstage presence in the second book, 
Um, I think they needed a break from each other after the first book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's very present in the first yes. book, but I was surprised how little she was present in the, in the second. Yeah, but I think yeah, as you say, like it was, it was, it kind of works nicely to kind of flesh things out beyond her. Yeah, because she's such an overwhelming presence. And, yes. And, in some ways, kind of overshadowing Jared's yes. personality a bit, which you know, as I say, is kind of here. He's sort of finding out more who he is, mm-hmm. and you know, like li- literally yes. uh, who he is. In addition to just more figuratively, kind of figuring out yeah. his identity and how he's going to deal with this. How he can't run from you know, he can run from he can abstain from drugs and alcohol, but he, he can't abstain from this yes. supernatural because it's just so hardwired into him yes. and his family. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way where, um, and, and the other thing that's I think just interesting on a sort of smaller scale is he, a lot of the distance between him and his mother now is because he's in AA. Yes. You know, and, and so he, now he has this weird family conflict where she's feeling rejected. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and her lifestyle is. You know, she's feeling, feeling very judged. Yeah, and, and you know, it's part of like being a teen and rejecting your parents in a certain yes. level, but also like. Yeah, feeling judged. I mean, that dynamic is really interesting. So you're writing a teen character. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've got a, a daughter who's 18, and uh, you know, she's very different from Jerry. <laughs> but but um, it's a really interesting. Um, <laughs> but I, like, I recognize like certain aspects of like the personality, like it, with like her and her friends. Like, you know, there's that sort of weird. The way I like to put it is like they have at that age like this desire to they want to like do things spend time with you but they don't want yeah. to want to spend time with you yes if you know what i mean yes like, uh, like it's a weird kind of push pull in, in a lot of respects yeah and, and and even just and then just there's sort of obs- concern with kind of knowing like trying things and knowing figuring out who they are and their kind of lack of confidence around yes. the future is very interesting but then also the there's like this tension between like you like in some moments they'll seem like 20 like older like yes. 25 all of a sudden they yes. seem very mature and then other moments it's like like the 12 again yeah you know and, and it's, it's real adolescence is real kind of weird yeah I, i'm curious like how do you write a team in that way like, like what kind of kind of like, like what do you do to like get in the head of a person of that age and I'm kind of write a convincing character surrounded by people of that age yeah. <laughs> and it's just a matter of paying attention it's just a matter of paying attention um i have a lot of uh i have a very large family uh, a small nuclear family and a large extended family so my my dad had 13 siblings and my mom had uh 16 so the, oh, wow. yeah so the amount of cousins i have uh you know, of all ages is insane. Uh, let's see. I was also touring a lot uh, in support of a pilot program. Uh, it was for First Peoples English 10, 11, and 12 in BC, and they wanted to include Monkey Beach on the curriculum. Okay. Uh, so everywhere there was a pilot program in Northern BC, I'd sort of drive there and, um, you know, uh, meet with the teacher, then we'd meet with the classes, and usually I'd give a workshop, and usually the classes are like 30 kids. It's really hard to do a workshop with 30 kids. Yeah, <laughs> so we would do a lot of group exercises, and they would build their own characters in like small groups. And then we'd set mm. the characters on different adventures, and they were always wild and crazy, and I learned a lot. Um, uh, and that's the kind of energy and voice I wanted to bring to the Trickster series. Uh, Jared turned up a lot, you know, he's he was very different as the drafts started evolving, uh, you know, the... Uh, the relationship with his mother changed. There were actual moments of tenderness in, in the midst of the insanity, and then with the neighbors, it was more. Uh, so he he became a character with a lot of heart. You know, he was still screwing up, he was still making mistakes, but you know, he meant well. Uh, I thought that he would show more of like a trickster side, like he would be more into pranks and stuff like that. That was the original concept for him. Like he would be, uh, he would behave more like a trickster. Uh, But having him be so compassionate and uh, caring about other 
beings, not just people, um, uh, makes him annoying in different ways. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that he means well... It's possibly <laughs> even more annoying than, you know, than if he was trying to just prank everybody. It's like, no, he's getting in there and he really wants to help. And, That's funny. And know. it also kind of plays into the whole idea that he's he's kind of running away from being a trickster. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or, you know, that idea that he's not really able to accept who he is. Yes. Uh, or, you know, and just trying to figure out who he is. Like, in some ways, it's a very standard, like, coming-of-age yes. process. But yes. you've got this kind of supernatural <laughs> stakes uh, yes. and world layered over it. It's, 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 yes. it's a very clever um, approach in that. Can, can I ask you about the trilogy itself? Because, again, you know, th- this is a, a, a podcast sort of more focused for writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you're actually sitting to write this trilogy, so, so initially, did you conceive of this as a trilogy? No. no. <laughs> It was going to be a short story. A short story? Yeah. <laughs> so how does that get out of control and become three books? You know? uh, yeah, sleep deprivation. <laughs> uh, uh, the original concept was, I was, you know, I was watching my dad tell, uh, we get stories to my niece and nephew. And these are stories that he told me when I was a kid. And they were hilarious. And they didn't laugh because they didn't have any of the cultural context that I had when I was growing up. Um, So I had to explain the humor to them, and they go, oh, okay, Uh, (laughs) ha-ha. So the original concept was to write a short story about We Get the Trickster, set in modern times, um, uh, to you know, to make it more relevant to my niece and nephew. That was the driving force. Uh, There was also a moment where Richard Van Camp in 2008, we were at the same storytelling festival, and he told a story about the Otter Woman going to the all-native basketball tournament. And it just amused me to no end. So those two concepts were going to be the core Mm. of the short story. But um, I had a lot to say about tricksters, and I quickly dropped Weget as the narrator because he was very braggy sure. uh, and he was very cocky and sure of himself. It was it's very much the Sherlock Holmes type type voice. Um, and when I knew I needed a Watson, uh, I was looking around at uh, the first narrator I tried was Maggie. Um, and uh, the early incarnation of her was even more fighty. <laughs> mm. So the so the novel was so the short story at that point was verging into a novella. There was a lot of stuff, and no narrator. <laughs> <laughs> so when funny. I tried to insert Maggie in there, it was a lot of fighting and brawling and drinking and you mm. know um, territory disputes and. Uh, then I tried again a very early incarnation of Sarah. I'm like, okay, that'd be great, you know, if, if you know the daughter of we get, you know, narrates his sort of story from her point of view, uh, and uh, that that didn't work. Uh, no matter what I tried, it it was a very stiff story, uh, and then. Uh, I had, like, my X file is the files of stories that have died (laughs) (laughs) and don't move anymore. (laughs) And then one of those X files was a beginning opening of a short story um, where a young man comes down on a Greyhound bus uh, to Vancouver. And it was, you know, it was a very lonely, moody opening. Um, And so when I combined that with the idea of a son of a trickster, um, uh, then the narrator just went, uh, hmm. and then about 200 pages in, I discovered that it was probably a novel. <laughs> oh. But originally, the trilogy, uh, I started writing Trickster Drift. Like that, oh, really? So yes. The second book is the first one you started writing? Uh, yes. Hmm. The second, so... Um, so when I had the first draft of that, there were these long kitamat sections uh, in flashbacks. And towards the end of the book, there was so much kitamat sections that my, uh, I always have 10, about 10 first readers for the first 
uh, for the first draft. Um, once I've sort of, I, I do a, like a super messy uh, rough draft and then hammer it into a, uh, then take apart the scenes uh, and then iron it out into a sort of, you know, uh, something more cohesive. And then uh, with the Trickster series, um, uh, I had five cultural advisors, uh, two technical advisors, and then three writers, uh, all giving me feedback. Um, so because, you know, uh, I'm Heisla in Heltzuk, and I really wanted to include, like, my experience with other First Nations, um, because, you know, there's in BC, there's 60 different First Nations, and to just write about Highland Heltic ones would be not realistic to my experience. But putting them in also, you know, it runs. Uh, so I, so like the Lidla Tene, uh, uh, the Kwakwakiwak, the, uh, you know, even just, even just, uh, I had a couple of first Heltic readers. Um, uh, so that was my, my sensitivity readers. They were telling me like when I was going off track or when I wasn't being quite accurate because in my head I've interpreted things just fine. (laughs) 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 But sometimes you don't and it's, it's helpful to have outside points of view. And then the technical advisors were for things like, you know, the, the, the cars and the power tools and what can and can't a nail gun do. Which brand of nail gun would actually <laughs> And then the three writers just for structure. Uh, and you know, for commentary about how it was moving. And unanimously the first draft was um like the humor, like uh, the characters, but uh, at the end, I was alternating kid at Vancouver, kid at Vancouver, kid at Vancouver, and they found that confusing, uh, and it dragged, and they didn't really know what was happening when, because kid was happening in the past, and Vancouver was happening in the present. They all had, there was, you know, the same set of characters. Uh, that are in the books right now sort of rammed together in the last 10 chapters of the original Son of a Trickster. So I was trying to, I was wrestling with too much uh, time leaps and too much uh, information, too many characters, um, just too much deluxe. So I pulled out all the Kinemat sections sort of glob them together as a novella inserted into the original book. <laughs> <laughs> He's really trying not to write shows. I, mean, I could just like trying so hard to not write shows. Really, really hard. <laughs> so, so, you know, so the original Son of a Trickster started off with uh, Jared leaving Kinemat, you know, exactly the same opening as Trickster Drift. Uh, no, not exactly the same. Uh, they didn't have that dinner scene. It was sure. just Jared leaving. Um, and then, you know, it goes along, it goes along. And then about the middle of the book, there's this 120-page novella about Kidamat. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on. And then, you know, you come back to the present. Uh, and then you figured, well, I'll pull that and make it first book. You know, so that when you, when you kind of make that decision to pull, uh, you then... Uh, I showed that draft where the middle section was Kitimat to my editor, and she said, well, it's, <laughs> it's you know, you've got a lot of characters, you've got a lot of elements, you know, uh, why not simplify the structure and make it linear? Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'll try that. That seems weird. <laughs> <laughs> what? No time leaves? <laughs> uh, so once I pulled the Kitimat section and moved it to the front, um, it just kept, it was like yeast, it just kept expanding. Mm. I was like, hey, hi, <laughs> it's me, I might have two books. <laughs> uh, and we had a long conversation about um, whether or not it should be one or two books. Uh, and uh, we had to redo contracts and um, 
so so then I went to write Son of a Trickster, and I had most of Trickster Drift already. Uh, so about halfway through Trickster, I realized that <laughs> I hit page 400 and still hadn't introduced the main antagonist. <laughs> hey, it's Edith. <laughs> How do you feel if it's, you know, a trilogy? <laughs> so it was it was an accidental trilogy. Hmm. Um, and I'm very, very determined that it will just be a trilogy. <laughs> So you haven't finished the third book at this no, point? No, no. I mean, but you're uh, into it, I suppose. Uh, I know all the elements that yeah. need to happen. I just don't know how they'll... Uh, I like, uh, you know, on the spectrum of writing types where uh, a dear friend of mine has the Nabokov method. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he calls mine the vomit method. <laughs> <laughs> We both produce a book every five years, so. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, this, yeah. So, before I started writing the trilogy, I was working on a trashy band council romance. <laughs> uh, it's the first, it's the first novel where I'm dealing with multiple perspectives, because everything that I've written, I like to live in one person's head. And you see the world through their eyes. If it's in first person or third person limited, it's you're always sitting. The furthest you go is someone's shoulder. Um, you don't really go that far out of their head. But the trashy band council romance is kind of demanding um, multiple narrators. So I've been reading a lot of novels where the writers are dealing with uh, multiple narrators. Um, uh, they're there by Tommy Orange. He has 12 narrators, mm. uh, and they all sort of converge on a powwow. Uh, and that's the, the sort of organizing uh, principle of the novel. Uh, the break where she had 11 narrators, and again, there's like one inciting incident, uh, and they all sort of circle around that, and that's what uh, makes the novel cohere. Um, so with... So with the trashy band council romance, you know the the it's the actual affair that you know that the two mains uh, are in, you know, um, and then everyone talking about it. <laughs> yeah. and the consequences of mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of their actions because they're both, you know. Uh, I have gifts as a writer. I'm very good at uh, dialogue, uh, menacing moods. Um, uh, and there was a third. I can't remember it at the moment. <laughs> Three fingers. Dialogue. It's early. It's only two coffees. Dialogue, a menacing mood, and um, I'll remember it eventually. <laughs> Gotta love the 50s. Uh, but one of the things I'm not good at is erotic writing, like sensual sure. writing. Um, but I, oh, angry, awkward sex. That's what. <laughs> Can't write erotica. <laughs> I'm sure there's a subgenre for angry, awkward sex. That seems like a thing. <laughs> So, um, so my challenge for the book after the the series is to try not to rely on dialogue so heavily. Hmm. Uh, to try to develop some of the other writing skills. <laughs> <laughs> I really like a lot about this process you're describing. So, you know, I, I work very you know, differently, personally, I'm, you know, I like to plan things out and mm -hmm. I do a lot of outlining and stuff, yeah. but at the same time, uh, I, I noticed like a lot of things you're talking about things that I like like for me it's all about narrative voice I've yes. got to find that narrative voice yes and and I, like you I, I like I seem to prefer you know sticking with a character mm -hmm. or, you know and you're just like either you I don't like first person so much but like sometimes yeah. but, like but can, you're just kind of with them in this third person limited and yes. you're kind of like almost like you know married to this person and yes. you know, speaking um, yes. You know, and it's different for different stories. They're like, to me, like that voice is so important. You yes. know, hitting that weird sort of, you know, who's telling this story? Yeah. Even if it's an authorial, like, 
narrating figure like who are they and why are they telling it yeah and like what's their method of telling it and what I like a lot about what you're describing is you talk a lot about just trying these different things you know mm. you, you, you start with a story you tried this voice and you tried this voice and you tried this voice and then you yeah. kind of tried this structure you did this structure I find a lot of times when I talk to writers that they're afraid to try things and, and, they, mm. and they, they, they talk about being blocked you know and they're stuck you know, I don't know what yeah. to do. It's like, well, I just do. One thing I, I, I hear a lot is like somebody's stuck in a story and they're like, well, I don't know what should happen next. And, you know, I've got, it could be this, it could be X or maybe Y or maybe Z, but I don't know which is right. And I'm like, why don't you write X, Y, and Z? <laughs> <laughs> and then just see which one you like better. I'd highly recommend waking up at four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Four in the morning. <laughs> it takes off a lot of the, a lot of the filters. <laughs> yeah. But just like trying things out, you know, and, and, and I, it's it's like pottery. There's you know, it's some things you just have to do by doing. Um, it's you're not going to learn a new skill if you don't try it. And, and, and not be afraid to be messy. Like, these books here are very polished books. Like, to hear you talk about it, you'd think, oh, you know, it's just going to be my, this big, messy jumbo. But, you know, they're very, very polished when, when they're done. Yeah, my <laughs> process is messy. Mm-hmm. I can't, uh, like, Annabelle Lyon, for instance, has, like, a, a, a detailed chapter by chapter. Uh, but, it, you know, she, she does all the, the structural work before she starts writing. Mm-hmm. That would drive me completely insane. Uh, I, I need that kind of messy, anything goes kind of uh, start to it to give myself permission to go anywhere I want to go. But um, I do all that, all the structure stuff that she does, I do that between the rough draft and the first draft. And then again, mm-hmm. when I give my first draft to my editor, then we do a, a we do another draft. Like we do an editorial draft where it's uh, we're looking at the big structural like uh, issues, like uh, uh, what needs to be said that hasn't been said. Uh, what are your plot holes? Uh, where's the motivation? Strictly, I need this to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's where we fix, you know, in the first big structural edit. Uh, and I know that um, uh, having worked with different editors before, uh, most of them found my process disjointed and crazy. <laughs> and they doubted anything, you know, you know, could ever come out of it because <laughs> it looks so insane <laughs> I, I wish I had like a different process like a more a sane process but this is what works with me I mean I feel like whatever process works yeah. is, is what works but it, yeah. you know personally I like to have a very kind of structured approach but then I just once I feel like I have like the skeleton I'm like okay now yeah. I can just do whatever yes. be wild yes because I know that I've got like the basics and, and often like I'll I'll come up, what I'll do is I'll come up with an outline and then I'll be disappointed if I stay the outline. Yes. Like if I stay the outline, something's wrong. Yes. And it's not working. I have to like get out of my own head in a sense and yeah, like start going wild with it. Yeah. But, but then like I can run to the outline. Like if I'm too tired, I have the flu or something. It's like <laughs> I don't have to come up with a good idea because I got one a year ago that I can use now or whatever. Yes. But um, I find like the, the messiness is... It's not a problem unless you are stressing out about it. Like yes. a lot of people, they have a messy process and they just aren't willing to accept it. Yes, and uh, they just freak out. Like they, they're like, I need to have a more structured process. It's like, well, that might help you, but maybe it will just get in your way. You know, yeah, like, and it'd be a form of procrastination. Like, so yeah. it kind of depends. I think it's 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 not a judgment on you mm-hmm. if your process is messy. <laughs> oh, you know, or if it's very clean. It's like, very clean. You know, yeah, as long as you're getting to the eventually yeah you know, where you want to go and like certain things that can speed you up or slow you down like yeah. the, the one problem with the messy process is it can be very slow but you've yes. got like all these readers to come in i'm, I'm sure that cuts a lot of time really yes. off your process like you've got 10 you know readers that are giving you all this feedback and you're like okay and now you're like making decisions like yeah you know, i used to i used to show the rough draft to my editors and uh, they'd go, oh my god, I can't <laughs> believe that we, you know, we actually bought your book. Ah! Uh, so, so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, now I, I give them a more polished edit because they they wouldn't. Um, I have a relationship with my editor now, and she knows the process, so I can streamline a bit. 
but um, but if it's an editor I've worked with before, then usually you don't give I don't give them my rough draft because they're usually bananas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love editing. I hate first drafts. I hate the mm. blank page thing. It just drives me completely nuts. So, so I'll do things. You know, like I don't have to write at four in the morning anymore. But I think to get over my fear of the blank page thing, that you know, I might have to go that early again. I'm doing it right now just because of my kids. But 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 I do find like. I find like when I'm in my head and like I'm, mm-hmm. I, I feel like stuck or whatever, a lot of it is just I'm, I'm putting too much pressure on myself. And and so I make a contract. Okay, I'm just going to write something terrible. Mm-hmm. Like my goal today is to write a thousand <laughs> shitty words. And I'll say I'll just I'll write it down on a piece of paper. Like my goal today is to write a thousand shitty words. And then it's like okay, they don't have to be good because yeah. like I said, yeah, maybe I can, maybe I'll just throw them out. Yeah. But maybe you know I can edit them later. Um, uh, Jody Picoa once said, "You can't edit a, bl- a blank page." Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't matter like how bad it is, as long as it's there. Yeah. Um, and even if you edit, it's just throwing in the trash. Like, in my mind, at least you've done your work. Yeah. You know, your job is to kind of, you know, I, like I always think of it as a job. Yes. Even if I'm not being paid, <laughs> like, it's my job, and I've got to do it. You know, because that's the process. You know, and. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't believe in a lot of mysterious aspects to writing, no. but I do think that like um, there's a certain like level at which if you just take care of your process, yeah. and, you know, that, then everything else will kind of just follow from that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, most of the the younger writers that I've mentored, the difficulty is that they're overthinking everything mm-hmm. uh, and trying to convince them that you know thinking's great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it's not the be and end all of writing. <laughs> uh, sometimes just writing is what you need to do and not, mm-hmm. you know, over process everything before you try put it on page. I tell uh, people that, you know, you've got your, you should have your time scheduled whenever it's going to be that you're going to yeah. write something. Then have another time when you worry about whether it's any good. <laughs> you don't have the same time, you know. Like seven to eight, you can write, and eight to nine, you can worry about whether it's perfect. But, it, but if you try to do them both at once, you just paralyze yourself. You, you know? really will. You really do. Uh, and that was that took me like the I think the first three novels to figure that out because uh, I was judging everything I wrote as I was writing it. So how do you yeah. still write three novels though? Like so, so when you're in that process and you're mm-hmm. judging everything and you're, you know, you, you kind of just feel stuck in your head, but you're still getting it done. Like how did you kind of keep yourself going in the face of that, uh, like that self doubt? Let's say. Yeah, well, I broke up with a lot of people. <laughs> it trashes a lot of relationships. <laughs> yeah, you become very whiny, huh? <laughs> Uh, but uh, I think it was cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a two-packer. Uh, lots of sugar. Like, you know, uh, and I was very ambitious in my 20s. I really, really wanted to be a famous writer. Uh, so, you know, I would spend about 18 hours a day writing. Wow. If I wasn't writing, I was reading. Uh, and if I wasn't reading or writing, I was sleeping. <laughs> or <laughs> buying cigarettes. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that paralyzing fear that everything I wrote was crap was, um, uh, you can shut that off with enough sugar, nicotine, and caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it wasn't good for my body and it wasn't good for my sanity, I think, or my editor's sanity, because I was just, um, writing in a panic is you know not really conducive to sanity. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get out of the writing? Did you just decide enough of it was enough? I gotta take this seriously. Um, well, blood sports was I think my turning point. That was where uh, uh, I finally went. Okay, you know what do I find amusing? What do you know? What do I find interesting? Um. So it, it, some of the early success I had was actually quite paralyzing because I kept wanting to replicate it. 
mm. or do better. And uh, with blood sports, I uh, it was my first flop where the like it kind of sank into you know oblivion very quickly. Really, I like uh, yeah. that book. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Uh, but it's also where I decided to work on my technical weaknesses um, and to explore, uh, you know, to explore world in you know as fearlessly as I could, and you know, not worry about sales, not worry about you know if it was nominated for anything. And that was um, that was when I found the joy. That was when I found mm. I was like, oh, okay, the process is actually quite fun. And playing with like the uh, the my absolute favorite scene that I wrote was there was a chapter that ran backwards in in second person voice, <laughs> mm. and that was that was where I rediscovered the joy of writing. Um, and then, you know, uh, there's a big, like, 10-year gap in my writing, and that was mostly for personal. Uh, I had a lot of a lot of things going on in my personal life. Um, so when I came back to it with Son of a Trickster, I, you know, I had gone through a lot of personal things, and, uh, you know, once you, I, yeah, I hit my mid-40s and just, you know, uh, really didn't care what anyone thought of me anymore. <laughs> sure. uh, so when I was writing the Trickster series, it was, um, you know, my specific audience was my cousins. That was, you know, and I wanted to write something that would make them amused. Uh, and I had, you know, specific cousins in mind when I was writing it. So that's, that's where I went with the second book as well. Um, so it was a, you know, it's a big shift. And I'm very grateful to menopause. <laughs> you find yourself, you know, caring a lot less about. Uh... <laughs> it's a weird balance because on one hand you have to care a lot. Yeah. Like, as you say, I feel like you need to have a little bit of ambition mm. and a little bit of drive, but but it can get very paralyzing. And, and on the other hand. I think, as you say, you, you kind of have to like just care a little less, especially yeah. about reception. Yeah, I find that was a, you know, a, a big issue for a lot of people who are younger when I talk yes. to them, is they care so much about the reception of their work they're almost afraid to show it. And yes. I think it's a function of just I always say it's just a function of you not having a lot of stuff. Yeah, because if you only have like five short stories you'd like, say, yeah, it, it, each one of them is symbolic of your writing as a whole yes. whereas if you've written a hundred short stories like well that's <laughs> one there's another one here Pick you know what one. I mean like, like you might like them and care about them and feel attached yeah. to them but it's like but they don't necessarily represent your whole yes. artistic world you know yes. like it's just a thing you wrote and, yeah. and I think that's a healthy attitude but it's hard yeah. to get to that point I think when you're young especially yeah when you know all the stakes are high yeah it feels high even if yeah. you're not high <laughs> To you, it feels you know, really high. And, and I think, you know, it, people, I see people get, a lot of people only put out one book, you know, and then just sort of never do a second one because yes. of that idea that somehow, I don't know, it was just they, they expected something different in terms of reception and they don't necessarily understand that. Um, the reception is kind of disconnected from yes. the writing in a certain yes. way. Like it, it depends there's, on so many other factors. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Um, truly marvelous writers out there who've you know never been fully appreciated mm-hmm. um and if you're waiting it's you know it's it's a it's kind of like expecting motherhood to come with a lot of appreciation yeah. sure, sure. <laughs> so maybe when your kids are t- in their 30s yeah like, oh, now i get it like now i now i'm with my i like think back to things my dad that he used to do that drove me nuts like my dad always wanted to throw everything away yeah he would like I'll be like, where's my thing? He's like, I threw it away. <laughs> I once went to go home get my fishing stuff, and he's like, I gave it to some kid who's walking down the street, and wow. he wanted it. And I was like, what? But now I understand it, because my yes. kids have all this trash everywhere, and it's yes. like, I just want to throw it all out. 
so, so I'm not doing it, but like, I feel like I never understood that impulse. And it yes. was like, you know, but, but yeah, yeah. so it's like 30 years, 40 years before somebody understands you. <laughs> you know? I feel like that's a good thing to think about with the writing. Like maybe they'll come faster, but yeah, you know, you know sometimes, um, like the, uh, well, I was really, you know, in the first two novels, especially, uh, I was very, very hungry very interested in being famous and rich and um uh and then you know it uh i had a taste of it with monkey beach and actually didn't do anything for me <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't make you know it didn't make the writing any easier <laughs> uh it didn't actually it, uh it didn't change any of the quirks of my head to make my life easier <laughs> and in fact you know kind of ramped up the anxiety so uh it was i found fame very disappointing <laughs> <laughs> so it's a nice side effect but it's not something that i'm mm. it's it's not gonna bring me like extreme happiness the way i thought it would um so it's not something uh the places that i really enjoy being are like when the writing's cooking and um you know and you get into the point where you lose track of time and uh you know you come up for air and it's been an hour and a half and you know oh my god look at all these pages mm. Woo! <laughs> some of it's good yay <laughs> uh those moments i live for uh, and editing, I'm just OCD when it comes to paper. So I have like all the charts and the little <laughs> note cards. So that's where I go completely nuts with structure. So let me just maybe end with asking you just a couple questions about how you're writing this third book in a trilogy. Because this is a really interesting space for me is, you know, how do you write the third book in a series? Mm -hmm. You know, so like what are some of the, just the practical ways you're approaching you know, you're trying to write a manuscript, but it's not, but you have these two books to mm -hmm. contend with. Like yes. they exist. Yes. These things happen. It's not like you can go back and change it. <laughs> <laughs> right? But yet you haven't like totally planned this next thing yes. necessarily. So, so like what are some ways you're actually practically approaching that manuscript? Uh, what have you set up that you need to pay off? Uh, and there are a lot of things that I've set up that I haven't paid off yet. And those have to be paid off in the third novel in order to have like a proper closure um so you know so so david was a, a big uh a big element in trickster drift and he needs to be uh paid off in the third novel like he hasn't he's come to a sort of conclusion but you know we need to see him interact with maggie we need to see him like what are the judicial consequences of his actions and who saw it and um uh with the trickster himself you know it's been set up set up set up set up set up okay now we need to pay that off uh so how much of the novel will be spent with them together like what kind of relationship will they come to um you know, and if that's not there, then it won't be a satisfying third novel. Uh, and, you know, Jared's personality by now is completely fixed. There's, you know, he can develop, he can he can change, he can shift, but there's two novels worth of, um, you know, evidence that he's this person. And you can't make him a different person for the third novel. So he's going to have to... Um, you know, he has shifted through the first book, changed to the second book, uh, and the third book, you know, he's dealing with the emotional fallout of the first two books. And unless he does that, you know, the third novel's not going to be satisfying. So, you know, how does it work with Sophia? How does it work with the supernatural creatures? Like, each of them has their own arc. Uh, so those arcs need to be subverted or concluded they have to and that has to be in the third the third novel 
Uh-huh. So trying to fit all those elements into a book that has its own structure is the challenge. So this is a bit more of a game in a certain way where you yes. go like, here are all the things, the rules that I yes. created for myself in a sense. Yes. And how do I connect it all? And that'd still be surprising. Yes. How do I pay off this thing? Well, we know, yes. for example, if, if, if you read books, my, my challenge I always have when I read books or if I watch movies is I kind of know, yes. I can kind of predict everything yes. for the most part because you, I always tell students like, here's how I'm going to ruin every movie. <laughs> I go, next time you watch the movie, I go, watch for 15 minutes, then pause it and write down all the things that have happened and all the way things are. Yeah. Almost everything will be the opposite. Yeah. You know, so if somebody's alive, they'll be dead. <laughs> if they're poor, they'll be rich. You know, it's yes. not usually that simple, but sometimes it is that simple. Like, yeah. Like you got these flips. Yes. And in some ways, like the surprises are how, but in other respects, like what is really impressive, at least to me personally, is when somebody manages to do. To, to not quite do the flip mm-hmm. you expect you know so it's like oh well you know this person instead of being murdered they're gonna become an undead zombie <laughs> like, like that's a dumb example but, but like, whereas like it, it's a change but it's not necessarily the expected change yeah i find like that's a really hard thing to do in general sense like how do you yes. surprise um you know people who know a lot about this kind yes. of story say for example, or whatever. Yeah. So, so are you thinking they, like they've they've seen a lot of arcs. They mm-hmm. they've seen a lot of character transitions. They've seen so how you know. Uh, I don't think I could surprise people who are very adept at. Um, I mean, you got the Nickelback in there. <laughs> those shifts. You got some very sudden and abrupt moves. Um, yes. Where like. Yeah, like I expect certain things to occur in some sort of way, but like I, there, I found like a lot of things very surprising. Like I knew at some point, I don't know. Again, spoiler alert! I knew at some point like Jared would turn into a crow. Yes, but I didn't know like when it was going to happen, how it's going to happen. It just seemed like a because you've got the crow in the first book. Yeah, you know, he talks to him. Yeah, and like that's identified with you know his father speaking to this crow, and I'm yes. like, okay, well, at some point he's going to become a trickster. But, yes. Um, or, or like potentially move towards being a trickster. Yes. Uh, but you know, I found like the, the sh- what was really surprising in that scene was, in some ways, you know, the, so the crow transformation to weirdly, the most startling thing, you know, if you were to like watch it happen, was less surprising than when he gets the alcohol. Yeah. You know, like like David is sort of yes. forcing him to break his AA. Yeah. Which I thought was really a shocking, you know, interesting thing. So I feel like you you sneak a lot of things kind of past <laughs> the reader by doubling it. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, Combining a lot of, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and in the first, like, two drafts, uh, uh, you know, David was basically just beating him into oblivion and then he transformed to get out of it. Uh, but in, uh, you know, in in writing as in life, I tend to avoid conflict. <laughs> mm. So when I went back in the third draft, I go back to the parts where I know that I've avoided putting Jared through the ringer uh, because I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the in the first novel, that was when Sophia left. Like I soft pedaled that for the first two drafts, and then when I finally did tackle it, it was very late in the process because it's just not a scene I wanted to write. Um, and that was the same with with this scene. Uh, I went, you know, in the first draft it was very violent, and uh, in the second draft I pulled back. I went, you know, this neither of these feel right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this doesn't feel satisfying somehow. And it's like, no, when you think about uh, David, he would go for the jugular and he would find the thing that would break you the break you the most. So if I was that kind of person, what would be the most, you know, and he's mm-hmm. been stalking him for the whole book, so he knows what Jared's trying to get to. Uh, so that was the moment when, oh, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to go there. And then I went, okay, well, you know, this is the journey. What happens when he does, uh, when he does break Jared's sobriety? What does that affect? What does that change? It's very clever and it's very character specific because I think a lot of people approaching those sorts of scenes, they'll think, oh, having the 
crap beat out of him is the yeah. is the bad thing. But you know, he's kind of used to having the crap yeah. beat out of him. So you know, psychologically, what's going to hurt him the most? You know, because and what's and the thing he's been working on the whole book up to yes. that point you know, is this other thing. Yeah. And, and as you say, like so, so in a weird way, like it's, it's the most vicious thing that David could do to him yes. in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so I, I find like when you kind of make those turns, it's really, really satisfying because um, it, it is a very much, a, again, it's kind of unexpected, yeah. but, it, but it, 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 it does logically kind of conclude a trajectory at the yes. same time. I find those sorts of shifts really are satisfying where you don't see it coming, but it is a conclusion to a series of things that have been happening. And then, as you say, you couple it with this other revelation of, like, you know, how he gets out of the situation and so on. Yes. Um, it's, it's interesting to see, like, how neat and um, polished that kind of uh, scene is on one level with, like, how messy your process is. <laughs> I clean up but good. I think, I think it's a good testament to, you know, how if you kind of, you know, tr- aren't afraid to try things and if you have... Um, if you kind of understand like your strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. as a writer and you kind of put like structures in place to address your weaknesses, yes. like you, you have all these readers, for example, yes. and, and yet you've got like other things in place to kind of, you know, intensify your strengths, you know, yes. like, like a situation that allows you to have this messy process and yes. to try different things. I, um, I think it's a really good way to approach, you know, writing and, you know, and you're getting a trilogy out of it. So you're, <laughs> you're doing something right. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again to Eden Robinson. Thank you for listening. Uh, And if you've enjoyed this interview, please uh, do me a favor and share this podcast episode. Just, you know, however you're listening to it, whether it's in your browser or on your phone, um, just, you know, take a quick second right now uh, and maybe as I'm talking, just click share, however you can click share. Just share it uh, with somebody that you think would like it. If you hated listening to it, Maybe uh, share it with one of your enemies. Um, Thanks very much and have a great week. Keep writing the wrong way.